0: Welcome to episode 151 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Vanessa from the Hauntedly podcast, Tess, Nonny Napoleon, Kayla Cornock, Marcelo Z, Alicia Barr, Dee Fitzpatrick, Chillspine, and Bethany Klein. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And before we get into the film review this week I just want to let you guys know that there will be no main episode next week. So on Sunday the 27th of February there will be a mini episode instead of a main episode. The reason for that is that I am away this week doing some super secret filming for YouTube for something super spooky and secret that will be out in June. And I'm not entirely sure how long it's going to take so I don't want to have to rush out an episode and it not be very good or not put out an episode at all so I'd rather pre-record three mini episodes for this week and release a mini episode instead. For those who prefer the mini episodes it is a bonus week for you and for those who prefer the main episodes I promise there will be main episode content as normal the following week when my feet are firmly back on non-haunted ground. It is absolutely blowing up a storm right now as I am recording this so if you can hear any rainfall or howling it is just the wind. And nothing paranormal to worry about. And our film review this week. Our film review is Antlers. Antlers was released in 2021. It has 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 59% on Rotten Tomatoes. In an isolated Oregon town, a middle school teacher and her sheriff brother become embroiled with her enigmatic student, whose dark secrets lead to terrifying encounters with an ancestral creature. I had really high hopes for this movie, And did it disappoint? Well, kind of and kind of not. So I'm going to go through the likes first as always and I'm going to try and keep this short and sweet. First thing to note about this movie is that I really liked the child actor. I find it really frustrating when a movie centers around a child and the actor isn't very good. But that is not the case in this film. The child actor is absolutely amazing. So much so that I can't remember his name even though I did look it up. But... He was really good and I wanted from the very beginning to just scoop him up and run him away from all of this trauma and just have him living in my house. And I feel like the best thing about this film was the fact that it really explores the nuance of trauma for both the adults and the children in the story. It's incredibly dark at various points and when I say dark I'm talking about the real world darkness of what these people are going through or have gone through in their past. And from the very beginning of this story, you find out that Lucas, who is our little boy, his father is cooking meth with his friend and his father is also an addict. And despite all of the trauma that Lucas has suffered, he still adores his dad and just wants to look after him. And that is shown throughout the story. And it's really touching. It's really touching. And I guess in a way, like the real horror is the hopelessness of these small towns that are ravaged by meth. And how much that impacts the children and the staff who are helpless to really do anything. You really see the frustration of Lucas's teacher when she is trying to intervene in his situation. But actually his situation is similar to countless other kids in the area. Despite the fact that he's got a big old monster situation going on too. Which which makes his situation maybe a little bit different. And speaking of the monster. The monster looked amazing. It was genuinely scary. It reminded me of the movie The Ritual. I thought it was very cool. I enjoyed it. It gave me actual terrible nightmares. I spent all the night after watching it having horrible nightmares about a cross between this monster in the film and Freddy from our previous stories that was just scuttling around trying to hunt me. So in that regard, it definitely did its job. But I really wanted more from it. I saw that it was a Wendigo movie and I was really excited because I don't know of a good Wendigo movie. And this story kind of felt like two separate stories that they then tried to gel together at the end. I couldn't really understand how or why the Wendigo was there. And it felt like it needed like a deeper exploration into the lore. Because the only explanation that we really got was a really brief scene with a native man talking about how to kill it. It kind of felt like they had this story of a child whose dad was a meth addict in this meth-riddled town and the teacher trying to save him and all of those things existed and then they thought oh but what kind of monster can we add to this story and this just settled on a wendigo i don't know if it needed more mystery and build up it just felt way too disjointed and i also felt like if you're going to do a story about a native american creature from native american lore then the native american presence in the film needs to be more than just a sort of cursory brief nod to the native traditions by having a man in explaining briefly what a Wendigo is. And for a movie that was supposed to be exploring the really dark nature of humans and of neglect and of trauma, it seemed to rely way too much, I thought, on like schlocky jump scares. And I'm not into an unnecessary jump scare in a film. I think films can be scary enough without overloading them with jump scares. And like I said, the monster looked really cool, but there are really only so many ways that you can see somebody being gored by antlers before it starts to get a little bit boring. So I think I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5. Like I really wanted to give it a 4 out of 5. But it felt as though the film was just a bit shallow. And that really let it down. I think if you are a fan of Del Toro. So this film was produced by Del Toro. And there is lots of Del Toro influences going on there. If you're a fan of Del Toro. You like things like Pan's Labyrinth. And you like films like Mama. This is definitely up your street. But just be aware that it might not necessarily live up to its full potential. Which brings us to our story this week, and our story this week is adapted from Credible Witness 2, More Paranormal Police Stories by Andy Gilbert. So let's get straight into it. Within the RLGS community, there is a wide spectrum of beliefs. There are the diehard skeptics, the staunch believers, the paranormal agnostics, and everything in between. But regardless of the ferocity of our beliefs, we all share one thing in common and that is that we just love a good ghost story. It's something to get lost in, and escape into. And of course, there will always be some stories that seem far more believable than others. One of our most requested story topics are stories from first responders. In the film Antlers, we explored the stories of various first responders, the teachers who witnessed strange behaviours in a child, the police officers, Who are called to noises and knocks in old seemingly abandoned houses and the pathologists who are the first to be called to the scene of gruesome and mysterious deaths we love hearing the stories of these people who in their daily lives are the first on the scene of all manner of strange and frightening things paranormal or otherwise we consume their stories perhaps because of a perception of figures of authority being intrinsically more truthful Or perhaps because in some ways we recognise that first responders often see the true darkness in humanity. Is it the fact that first responders see the dark side of humanity on a daily basis in multiple locations, that they are just statistically more likely to experience something paranormal? Or is it just the stress of the job? Sometimes it's easier to blame the paranormal than accept that stress and late nights are getting to you. Andy Gilbert, the author of Credible Witness 2, asserts himself as no expert in the paranormal, but he was struck by the amount of police officers he had come across in his time that had strange and wonderful stories to tell, and the following tales are adapted from these stories. It was a cold January night in Kent, in the southeast of England, and John was working his shift as a probationary police officer, He felt that for the first time he had really found his true calling. That he knew deep in his soul that this was the job he was meant to be doing. The night shift was unpredictable. Some nights it would be slow and frankly boring, and other nights they would be run off their feet. John loved it when it was busy because each call was unique, each person they dealt with was unique, and he felt like every case added to his experience as an officer. The call came in a few hours into the shift a woman living in a block of flats had reported a burglary in progress in the flat above her she explained that her upstairs neighbor worked nights and that she could hear the flat being trashed john and his partner made their way to the flat and arrived on scene just as another patrol car pulled up it was decided that john and his partner would make their way up to the first floor flat and the other patrol would man the exits should the perpetrators try and jump from the window or bundle past the others. The two officers made their way up the stairs as quietly as possible. They didn't want to give the criminals any indication that they were there, until it was really necessary. As they neared the top of the stairs, they could hear a commotion from inside the flat. It was the unmistakable sound of heavy furniture being pulled and dragged across the floor. They could hear the tinkle and crashing of cutlery and crockery being moved. Whoever was in the flat was not trying to be stealthy, that's for sure. John and his partner waited outside the door trying to decipher how many people were in there. The speed at which the furniture was being moved suggested at least one person was inside, but it was very likely to be more. More backup arrived, and all of the officers removed their truncheons just in case. John shouted, It's the police! We're about to enter the flat, let's do this quickly and calmly. The noises stopped instantaneously, and an eerie silence oozed from the cracks around the door. In the meantime, the owner of the flat had been contacted. He was a security guard, and was working a shift in a nearby building when he got the word that his house was being robbed. He arrived back with a German Shepherd dog in tow, and John used his key to deftly open the door. The officers burst through the door, expecting to see the perpetrators frozen in fear or poised for a fight. But the first thing John noticed was the cold. It was a January night, and it was cold anyway. But this was different. This was an icy cold that made him feel uneasy, like his body instinctively knew that it wasn't right. His breath fogged up in front of him as he moved from room to room searching for the suspects. There was nothing, no signs of life in the flat at all. While the officers searched, John made his way back to the owner who was waiting on the landing. Have you been decorating? he asked him. The owner looked confused at the question and shook his head. John eyeballed him and knew he was telling the truth. I think you better come and look at this. In every room of the flat, the furniture had been piled into the middle of it. Tables, chairs, sofas, you name it, were piled in the centre of each room. Then odds and ends and trinkets were stacked up here, there and everywhere in little towers. Finally, the upturned dome ceiling light shades had been stuffed with cutlery. The owner walked around the flat slowly, taking it all in, mouth open in shock. His dog refused to enter the threshold, but crouched whimpering at the doorway with her tail between her legs. Eventually, John had circled the flat and was now standing next to the police officers again. She said she would do this, he said in a voice that was barely above a whisper. My wife. She said she would do this. She said she would come back and mess with the furniture. She died three weeks ago. The three patrols returned to the station confused. They had all heard the furniture being moved, as did the woman downstairs. They had seen the absolute carnage in the flat, and they knew that no one had exited the flat. There was only one door in or out, and the only other option was the window, which was manned by two officers and was tightly closed when they entered the flat. They couldn't make head nor tail of it, and decided that ambiguity was their friend when writing the report. They recorded the incident as burglary with intent and the next night officers were called to the same chain of events in the same flat. But not all calls carry the same ambiguity. It is unusual but not wholly unheard of for people to call the police and say that they had seen a ghost and this is exactly what happened to Mark. He was on patrol and received a call from the control room as the closest officer to an incident. It's a weird one to be honest, came the crackling voice over the radio. They said they've seen a ghost. Mark chuckled and made his way to the location. A ghost could mean one of three things. Drink, drugs or mental health issues. Or obviously a combination of all three. He drove to a lonely country lane and the paranormal victims weren't hard to find. A car was pulled over in a country lane with their hazard lights blinking in the darkness. Mark pulled up behind them and made his way towards the car, with his flashlight spanning the road to check for any damage that he might need to be aware of. As he approached the car he could see four older occupants, and he could also see that they were visibly distressed. He tapped gently on the window and asked if they were okay. The driver barely turned his head and simply said, We hit her. I know we hit her the four friends had been driving down the country lane chatting and laughing as they drove when a woman in a white floor-length shift dress stepped out into the road seemingly from nowhere she turned and stared them down staring directly at the oncoming car it was so quick that there was barely any time to react the driver braced for impact and slammed on the brakes as the woman opened her mouth and let out an unearthly shriek. No impact came as the car slid right through her, and she was gone, disappeared as quick as a flash. Mark listened patiently. He was not convinced that they had seen a ghost, and instead asked them each to step out of the car so that he could breathalyze them. None of them had any alcohol in their systems. He searched the area for any evidence of an accident, and there was no damage to the car, and definitely no sign of a woman, paranormal or otherwise. Mark radioed the control room and asked for confirmation that there were no reports of missing women in the area. He did this for the sake of the driver, really, as Mark thought he already knew what had happened. Mark explained to the driver his theory. As the party were driving along, engrossed in their conversation, a large owl had swooped in front of the car and screeched when it saw the approaching vehicle. The shock of the situation had made the occupants of the car believe that they had seen or heard a woman. The occupants of the car looked unsure of themselves now, and after taking all the details he could and assuring them that a team would come and do a thorough search of the area as soon as possible, Mark sent them on their way. He made his way back to the car, proud of his owl theory, and chuckling to himself at the absurdity of the whole situation, when he heard a voice. "'Excuse me, officer? Excuse me, is everything okay?' It was the resident of the nearest house who was concerned when he saw the police car. Mark assured him that everything was fine and that the people in the car had had a fright but that everything had been sorted now. He was careful not to give away any details. Ah, said the man, I see. They saw the woman, did they? Yep, my daughter has had the same experience on this road. Thought she drove right into her, but nothing there. Mark hadn't mentioned the woman and suddenly realised that it probably wasn't Owl's. Paranormal experiences on call-outs or on the beat are interesting, but what struck me about this book is the amount of officers who reported being witnessed to alternative investigation means being used on cases. For example, one story outlined a case where a regressive hypnotist was brought in to try and retrieve memories from an injured man who then went on to give details about the crime that he never could have known. There was a story of a woman who dreamed about a murder, and eventually her evidence led the police to find the killer. But that is a whole story for another episode. And there were a number of police officers who tried to use the Ouija board to solve crimes. I have to be really clear here that I don't mean that the British police force are using the Ouija board as a tried and tested method to solve crime. But there are police officers who have found themselves playing a Ouija board and had a particular case on their mind. They were usually playing under the influence of alcohol and ended up blurting out a question relating to a case and the results are definitely surprising. In 1974 Richard was a police officer and there was an ongoing case that was proving tricky. There had been a string of armed robberies and three men had been killed but there was no suspect to be found. Richard was aware of the case as a young officer and to him it definitely felt like a big one but they were no closer to apprehending anyone. The killer had been nicknamed the Black Panther. Richard had lost his father the previous year and his sister had just driven to his house to spend some time with him. Richard and his wife and his sister talked and caught up having a few drinks while they did. Talk, as it does, somehow turned to the Ouija board and they decided, bolstered by wine and company, to try their own. They made their own board and used a glass as a planchette and began asking the spirits questions. Some part of them, Richard now believes, was looking for closure after the death of their father. They wanted to contact him and make sure that he was okay, They asked the usual questions that are asked of these things, and eventually they believed they had made contact with their father. They asked for their father's middle name, which the wife and sister did not know, and the board spelled out Lachlan. Richard was convinced that this was the real deal, and he was sure that he was not the one moving the glass. And then for some reason unknown to him, he asked, What is the identity of the Black Panther? There was nothing for a moment. And then the board slowly spelled out N-A-P-P-Y N-A-P-P-Y For listeners outside of the UK and Ireland, a nappy is our word for a diaper. Richard laughed at this and thinking his dad was perhaps telling him to check on his daughters, he went upstairs and and the girls were content and sleeping. They ended the Ouija board session, and that was that. Sometime later, Donald Nielsen was arrested and charged with the armed robberies, the murders of the three men, and the kidnap and murder of a woman. The Black Panther was sentenced to life in prison in 1976. A few years later, Richard picked up a book related to the case. On the first page, was a family tree of Donald Nielsen. Except Donald Nielsen had changed his name when he got married so that his children would not have to endure the same bullying that he did. His real name was Donald Nappy. These stories never cease to amaze me, really. First responders witness incredible amounts of truly terrifying and downright bonkers situations, In this book there are stories of police officers seeing monks in full robes gliding through walls. There were police officers who reported seeing security footage of strange lights that was then confiscated by governmental organisations. First responders witness incredible amounts of truly terrifying and downright bonkers situations. And like I said, maybe it is the stress of the job. Or maybe, statistically, it's just more likely to happen to them. So in my previous role, I used to work as a safeguarding lead, which meant that I helped children and families that were in crisis or in distress for whatever reason. And sometimes it was a really harrowing job and sometimes it was just absolutely bonkers. And I worked with the police and the mental health team and the social services teams on various different cases. And honestly, sometimes it would feel like you were living in a film because some of the cases were just so wild that we dealt with some of them incredibly harrowing and other times it would just feel completely surreal completely surreal so i can tell you that even without the paranormal stuff first responders see some weird shit man and there were some great stories within this book of police officers who had seen something and went back to the station and said i think i just saw a ghost and then were mercilessly teased by their coworkers for the longest time there was also a brilliant story about a police officer who was called to do a sweep of a building because there was all these reports of like banging and shouting from this building that was long abandoned and uh, the police officer burst into a room and what was making all the noise was actually three guys doing a paranormal investigation and that really made me laugh because it felt like that is something that could happen to me and then I see I wouldn't be able to explain myself properly I just burst into tears and just say arrest me now i know i've 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 done i'm I've, I've done terrible things i'm sorry the first story that we explore today takes place in gravesend in kent and i thought it was an interesting story because of the sheer amount of witnesses so it seemed like when i was reading the story now i could have been totally wrong but it seemed like there were six police officers called to the scene in all i assume obviously because it was a burglary in progress and they would be thinking if The perpetrators have weapons. We don't know how many perpetrators there are, so we need as many bodies as possible on the scene. So I understand why there were so many people there. So all of those people experienced something. Presumably, they all heard the furniture being moved around. The woman who called the police in the first place obviously had reason to believe that there was somebody moving around in the flat upstairs. And yet, when they got into the apartment, all of the furniture was just piled up in the middle of the room and the cutlery and the light shades and all of that mad stuff that happened and then that poor man seeing this happening and then saying she said she was going to do this his wife would pass away whatever about haunting somebody you know i'm all for a bit of a haunting if i die i'm going to haunt everybody in my life and i'm going to be an absolute scourge but i don't think i'd do that if i said you know if i die and i come back to haunt you and I'm going to move some furniture. I, I kind of feel like it would be a little bit more subtle than that. Or a little bit less threatening than absolutely wrecking the place. And then shoving all your cutlery in the lampshades. But then maybe it was her way of making sure that he realized it was her. And that he didn't try and rationalize it away. Maybe, he, maybe she was thinking if I'm going to move that furniture I'm going to fucking move that furniture. And you're going to know it was me. There's going to be no small measures here. It seems like a bit of an aggressive act though. You know it seems like it's a bit of a I'm doing this to piss you off even after death I'm still going to piss you off and I wonder if this is one of these stories where when you dig down into it not everybody has experienced something so not everybody in the story has experienced something you might think there are six seven at least seven witnesses and then when you dig down into it actually only a couple of people heard something and the other people were told about the stuff that was heard, and then it becomes their story too. And when you actually dig down into it, they themselves haven't experienced anything. So I'd love if there was a way to like find the other officers that were on the scene and say, Did you actually hear something? Did you hear the furniture moving? Or are you basing this on John and his partner's reports? And then, of course, there is the whole situation with the next night that the same thing apparently, allegedly, happened again. So I don't know. Just to update you all, it is so stormy outside that my lights keep flickering. And honestly, this does not feel like a good time to be plunged into darkness. (laughs) I would rather that didn't happen. So our second story was our owl story. And I would like to point out that I did not add the owl detail for hilarity or for dramatic effect that was actually written in the story that he had posited this theory that it was an owl that had screeched and in their brains they had conflated that and turned it into seeing a woman in a nightgown. But I very much enjoyed it. It really did make me laugh that he thought it was owls. And I, you know, we've talked about those stories before a bazillion times about phantom hitchhikers or these mysterious women who appear on the side of the road at the site of an accident or the site of a murder. And I don't know what to tell you, but the guy coming out of the house and saying, oh... Did they see the woman? Yeah, my daughter saw that too. Is it possible that both the two people separately could mistake owls for a woman in a long Victorian nightgown? Because they specifically said she was a woman in a Victorian nightdress, like a shift dress. And those things weren't short. And they definitely didn't have wings from, from what I know of Victorian fashion. Again, I would wonder about the people in the car. Like, Did all four people... See the same thing, or did the driver then say, I saw a woman in a Victorian dress and that's what I drove into? Because it's tricky, isn't it? When you have a group of people who allegedly experienced something, they might not have all experienced the same thing, but as the story unfolds, you all lean towards other people's thinking. Now, our final story was all about Donald Nielsen, and I was fascinated by the inclusion of these Ouija board antics in this book. And I mentioned briefly in the story that there is a story that came up about a woman who had a dream about a murder. And it is so good. And I had on my list of episodes to do an episode about people who have nothing to do with a crime, who seemingly dream or have a vision of elements of the crime. And then it goes on to solve the crime. On Patreon, my when the last episode my mum was on, she spoke about a psychic that she visited. And that psychic is allegedly meant to have helped in the solving of a crime in England because she had a dream about it. And she dreamed about where the murder weapon was and who the murderer was and apparently it turned out to be true. Now could this just be a very good spin in order to sell something or get people in to see you as a psychic? Possibly. I don't know. But there were stories in this book about alternative methods that had been used to solve crimes or point in the direction of crimes. And as well as the nappy Ouija board case which I thought was a little bit fascinating because it's so specific and in never in a million years, I don't think I've ever heard the surname Nappy. So I understand why he changed it because you know you wouldn't want your children to be bullied for having that surname, especially if you had experienced that too. But I hadn't heard that surname and it was just so specific that that would be what the Ouija board would say when he asked who is the Black Panther. And there was another story about a group of police officers who were working on a case. Again, it was a murder case and they were in the pub that night and they they didn't know anything about who the suspect was so they got a bit drunk and they started playing the Ouija board one of the police officers didn't at all want them to ask questions related to the case but in their drunkenness they did and one of the officers asked who killed whoever it was that was killed and the Ouija board started saying loves queen loves queen loves queen over and over again and it didn't really make any sense to them didn't make any sense to anybody around the table so they ignored it and the next morning when they went to work there was a suspect and they had to go and arrest this suspect from his mother's house and when they got to his mother's house the house was full of paraphernalia of the band queen and when they asked the mother why they had so much queen paraphernalia in the house she was obviously very upset about her son being arrested and she just kept crying and saying that her son loves queen So I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, make of that what you will. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn more about Real Life Ghost Stories Podcast, you can find out any information that you want or need on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. Just to remind you, at the end of the episode, there will be no main episode on Sunday, the 27th of February, but there will be a mini episode instead. And I will see you next time.